When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cat's Belly Project. As always, if you would like to contact me for corrections, suggestions, or anything at all, don't hesitate to email me at cassusbellyguy at gmail.com. That's C-A-S-U-S-B-E-L-L-I-G-U-Y at gmail.com. I love getting feedback from listeners. So this episode is our transition episode, Back to Europe. We spent a long time in the Pacific, but we finally caught up. America entering the war is no insignificant footnote, though. So this episode is devoted just to sort of explaining where America is in early 1942. Sort of like how I had an all-things Soviet Union episode a while back, this is kind of an American grab-back episode. I talk about America's mindset, where the military is, and the origins of the Manhattan Project. So you know what? Let's just get started. Episode 22, The Reluctant Dragon. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? February 25th, 1942, coastal artillerymen and anti-aircraft gunners peered into the night sky above Los Angeles. The city was blacked out, and everyone was on edge. There had been almost constant reports, not only along the west coast, but throughout the United States, of Japanese sneak attacks since Pearl Harbor. There had even been a few engagements, if you want to call them that, with the Japanese off the west coast in the past few months. So when the air raid sirens and AA guns began tearing through the quiet of the night, No one was surprised. Someone had reported seeing something in the night sky, which caused gunners in Santa Monica to start firing. The sound of gunfire triggered panic, which swept across the greater Los Angeles area, and searchlights lanced upward into the night sky, looking desperately for a target to help the gunners. Suddenly, reports were coming in from across the city of enemy fighters, bombers, and paratroopers. No one was quite sure what was happening. Everywhere the searchlight operators looked, there was nothing for them to see except the glow of tracers and pops of flat cannons. This cacophony of attempted destruction continued for nearly an hour with guns blazing and searchlights moving frantically about the sky, until finally someone gave the all clear. The battle damage assessment when all was said and done? Roughly $500 in property damage from falling debris and five civilian deaths from car accidents and heart attacks. No enemy killed or enemy vehicles destroyed. No bomb craters were found either to evidence Japanese presence. Yet still, even days after the incident, some officials, 
even as high as Secretary of War Henry Stinson, still believed the city had come under attack. It was not long, though, before everyone came to the conclusion that nothing had actually happened. The whole thing was the result of understandable jitters, because just recently, the Japanese had actually attacked the West Coast. Two days before the ironically named Battle of Los Angeles, a Japanese submarine had actually attacked the Elwood neighborhood of Santa Barbara. At 7 p.m. on the evening of February 23rd, just after sundown, the Japanese submarine I-17 surfaced and oriented its main gun towards the Richfield Aviation fuel tank and opened fire. Moments later, the rounds began impacting around the fuel plant, but rocked by waves and firing in the dark, the gunners couldn't make their shots land true. The explosions were still a shock to the people on the receiving end, though. The fuel plant workers at first thought they were internal explosions, until someone spotted the submarine. When they realized they were under attack, they called the police, who notified the military. After firing somewhere between 12 and 25 rounds, the I-17 skipper, Kozo Nishino, ceased firing and steamed away to the east. The sub that attacked LA was actually a part of a larger operation carried out by six other Japanese submarines, which had been dispatched to raid commerce in the eastern Pacific off the U.S. west coast in the days immediately following Pearl Harbor. They were moderately successful, sinking two U.S. merchant vessels and damaging several others. They did not come into contact with the U.S. Navy during that time, but all of the engagements were inconclusive. After only a month, most of the submarines had returned to home waters to regroup, but not all of them. The only one to do anything of significance, though, was the I-17. Because the skipper was a naval reserve officer, he had sailed to Elwood Oil Field to take on an oil shipment before the war, so knew exactly where to go when he received the word to raid the West Coast. The attack on Santa Barbara would not be the last Japanese raid on the West Coast. Later in the war, there would be attacks on Fort Stevens, Washington, Vancouver Island and British Columbia, and two incendiary air attacks on the forests of Oregon in an attempt to trigger a wildland fire. The Japanese would even create a project to drop explosives on the continental U.S. using balloons, known as Operation Fugo, which will be the subject of a later episode or appendix. So why do I go into this little nugget of history? Surely it's not as pivotal as the battle for the fall of Singapore or the Battle of Midway, but it goes to show the state the American people were in during the days immediately following Pearl Harbor. The country was consumed by hysteria and believed the Japanese had an almost supernatural ability to strike anywhere at any time. The Battle of Los Angeles is the only the most high-profile incident of panic overtaking a populace, but it certainly wasn't the only one. Especially on the West Coast, people were on a constant alert for signs of Japanese attack or sabotage. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the situation had certainly changed dramatically. So much so, that I even posit that it ends the first act of the war. Germany and Japan were both, more or less, at their high watermarks, and the Allies were at their lowest point when, through hubris, the Axis awakened the sleeping giant. Now the tide would begin to turn. Though only a few short years earlier, the United States had had the 19th ranked army in the world, sitting snugly between Bulgaria and Portugal. She now had a large and growing force thanks to one man, George C. Marshall. Marshall is certainly one of the most unsung heroes of the Second World War. Yes, his name is well known, but it doesn't conjure the same awe as Patton, MacArthur, or Eisenhower, despite the fact that he essentially built the army up in preparation for the war himself. I imagine this is because he was not one of the front-line commanders issuing orders from headquarters in Europe or the Pacific, but instead fought the war in Washington, directing materials and supplies, 
rather than divisions and bombs. George Catlett Marshall was born in Uniontown, Pennsylvania on December 31, 1880, where he spent most of his childhood. Though born and raised in Pennsylvania, he was of old Virginia stock, so in 1897 he enrolled in the Virginia Military Academy, VMI, where he played left tackle on the football team. Four years later, he finished his studies and applied for a commission in the Army. This was prior to the creation of the Reserve Officer Training Corps, or ROTC, so the commissioning process was somewhat different than it is today. In the meantime, while he awaited the results of his application, Marshall spent a short time as the Commandant of Students at the Danville Military Academy, not far from Lexington, Virginia, where he had attended school. Eventually, though, he did receive his gold bars and was commissioned a second lieutenant of infantry in February 1902. Soon he found himself traveling around the United States and the world for schooling and line positions, including time as both a platoon leader and company commander in the Philippines during the Philippine insurrection. From 1906 to 1910, he was posted to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, to attend the Infantry Cavalry School as a student, then as an instructor. From there, he went back to the Philippines until 1916, when he once again returned to the States. Here he was assigned as the aide-de-camp for the Western Division Commander in San Francisco, which would ultimately lead to him going to France in World War I. After the United States declared war on Germany in 1917, Marshall was sent to France to help mobilize the 1st Division, and then serve on the division's staff. There he proved his capacity for military operations, when he planned the division's attack at the Battle of Contigny. Having shown his worth as a planner, he was moved to the American Expeditionary Force headquarters, where he worked directly for General Pershing. While there, he made a huge impression on Pershing, and was promoted to colonel. After the war ended, though, Marshall reverted back to his permanent rank of captain, but he remained Pershing's aide-de-camp and followed him back to Washington when he became chief of staff. There he helped develop army training and doctrine, but was posted to command the 15th Infantry Regiment in China in 1924. After that three-year stint, he returned to the U.S. once again and served as the Assistant Commandant of the Infantry School at Fort Benning, Georgia, formerly colloquially known as the Fort Benning School for Boys, yours truly being one of its many graduates. He served there from 1927 to 1933. While there, he made radical changes and updated the curriculum to reflect modern tactics. He eschewed complex orders and strong top-down decision-making and control for simpler guidance to subordinates and rapid offensive action. Like all of the successful generals of the Second World War, Marshall recognized the need for maneuver and low-echelon initiative on the 21st century battlefield. During his tenure at the infantry school, Marshall oversaw the instruction of over 200 future generals, and when names came across his desk during the war with recommendations for division and corps commanders, he knew most of the men well from when they were his students. To be one of Marshall's men was considered quite prestigious. After completing his time at Fort Benning, he was promoted to colonel and became the commander of the 8th Infantry Regiment, then the post commander at Fort Moultrie, South Carolina. From 1933 to 1936, he was the chief of staff of the Illinois National Guard's 33rd Division. In 1936, he went to Vancouver, Washington, to command the 5th Brigade, 3rd Infantry Division. In 1938, he was transferred back to Washington and became the head of the War Plans Division, and soon he became the Deputy Chief of Staff. While serving as Deputy Chief of Staff, he made the move that would solidify his place in the pantheon of American generals. During a conference with President Roosevelt, in which the President was discussing military increases in preparation for a general war in Europe, 
and the need for a large air force over a large army, Marshall was the sole voice of dissent. He argued for the primacy of ground maneuver forces and their necessity in modern war. After leaving the room, most of the careerists wrote off Marshall's career and assumed his disagreement with the president was his undoing, but they couldn't have been more wrong. The president nominated Marshall to be the new chief of staff after the retirement of General Craig. On September 1st, 1939, the day Germany invaded Poland, Marshall was promoted to full four-star general and sworn in as chief of staff. As chief of staff, Marshall knew what his priorities were and began to fight for them from day one, which was a good thing because he only had two short years before the war came to him. One of his first actions was to lobby Congress to pass the Selective Service and Training Act of 1940, which introduced the draft and brought 1.2 million men under arms by the end of 1941. He also worked in concert with the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Harold Stark, to develop the Joint Board of Estimate of the United States' overall production requirements, or more simply, the Victory Program which oversaw America's grand strategy for production to defeat a two-front war against Germany and Japan. Marshall also wanted to get the army itself into a more war-ready footing. The interwar army of the 20s and 30s was a small parochial force that could be rather myopic at times. It had its visionaries like all other armies in the world who saw the coming supremacy of maneuver and air power, but it also had its fair share of pension seekers. This had to be shaken off. To jumpstart the readiness of the army, he scheduled massive training maneuvers and war games, such as the one that took place in the fall of 1941, which pitted the 2nd Army against the 3rd Army across huge swaths of Texas and Louisiana. These types of large-scale exercises are not just to flex the tactical skills of maneuver leaders, though. In fact, that is probably of secondary importance. Of primary importance is really to get the men used to living in sparse conditions. As Napoleon said, hardship Poverty and want are the best school for a soldier. In addition to just making the grunts endure the suck, the maneuvers also flex the logisticians. It's one thing to supply a force and garrison. It's another entirely to support brigades, divisions, and armies in the field. Field sustainment is incredibly difficult and is a tough business, and the sooner the armies learned how to feed, fuel, and fix themselves on the move, the better off they would be. These war games would also give bright, mid-career officers a chance to make a name for themselves. Eisenhower and Patton both earned army-wide reputations for being bold and successful leaders during these trial runs. Marshall also needed to develop his headquarters in Washington. He knew he would be running the inevitable war from there, so he needed to put the right systems and people in place to do so. He organized the General Headquarters, or GHQ, in Washington, and placed both the land and air arm commanders there. In 1940, the Army Air Force had been officially created, and General Henry Hap Arnold was placed in command. He also created an operations division for the Army, the OPD, and placed newly promoted Brigadier General Eisenhower in charge of it. So when the U.S. entered the war, the Army, and the armed services as a whole, were well on their way to being fit to fight. But they weren't quite there yet. There was not a single division that was 100% manned and equipped, but the plans were in place to bring more men under arms and the nation's industrial base was quickly mobilizing. The military also had the president's full backing and support. Roosevelt was intimately involved in military planning and came to lean heavily on Marshall for support and advice, which was a good thing because U.S. troops were already locked in life-or-death struggles in the Pacific and would soon be arriving in Europe. The first American soldiers to land in Europe were from the 34th Infantry Division of the National Guard, 
hailing from Iowa, Minnesota, and North and South Dakota, who arrived in Belfast on January 26, 1942. They were the first men to participate in Operation Bolero, the troop buildup in the UK for the eventual cross-channel invasion. Allied leaders wanted to have troops in position as quickly as possible, because at that moment, it really didn't look like the Soviet Union would survive the winter. If Moscow fell and the Red Army collapsed, the President wanted American troops available for Operation Sledgehammer, an invasion at some as-yet-determined point somewhere in Western Europe. To prepare Allied forces in Europe, Marshall moved Eisenhower again in June of 1942 to command all Allied forces in the European theater of operations. The President also began making plans to begin creating a front somewhere to fight the Germans. Though Marshall and Eisenhower lobbied for a cross-channel invasion in 1943, Roosevelt agreed with Churchill that American troops needed to be engaged sooner, so instructed his generals to begin planning an invasion of North Africa for the fall of 1942. With the United States now drawn irreversibly into the conflict, the leaders of the Allies needed to formulate some sort of plan and understanding, so the Arcadia Conference was initiated. Unlike the Atlantic Charter that occurred in August of 1941, the Arcadia Conference was held in secret. The Atlantic Charter, for its part, was an open document that outlined the ideals of the British and American governments, and essentially what they believed the war to be about, though the United States was not yet a belligerent. President Roosevelt wanted to make it clear whose side he and the American people were on, though he had already made the, that abundantly clear. Way back in January 1941, he had allowed the United States to participate in the ABC Conference, or American-British-Canadian Conference. During this conference, the U.S. essentially entered into war planning with the British Empire. The U.S. and U.K. agreed that Italy should be taken out of the war as quickly as possible, and that they should make efforts to assist burgeoning resistance groups in Europe. The United States even agreed to seize German, Italian, and Danish vessels in American ports, resulting in 850 Italians and 63 Germans being arrested. The Atlantic Charter was composed of eight critical points. One, no territorial gains were to be sought by the United States or the United Kingdom. Two, territorial adjustments must be in accord with the wishes of the people concerned. Three, all people had a right to self-determination. Four, trade barriers should be lowered. Five, global economic cooperation and advancement of social welfare. Six, the Allies would work together to build a world free from want and fear. 7. The Allies would advocate freedom of the seas, and 8. Aggressor nations would be disarmed, and there would be a common disarmament after the war. Lofty goals, no doubt, but they were entirely aspirational in late 1941, not to mention mildly hypocritical of the British Empire, and even the United States to an extent. Unlike the Atlantic Charter, the Arcadia Conference was less about high-minded ideals and more about practical means of fighting a global war. The conference was held in Washington, D.C. on December 22, 1941, between FDR and Churchill, along with various military and diplomatic leaders. Over the course of the conference, they agreed to several points. First, that Europe would be the priority of Allied efforts, limiting the forces that would be sent to the Pacific. It also created the Combined Chiefs of Staff, which would be headquartered in Washington and would oversee all Allied decisions. This was buttressed by the creation of the Supreme Allied Commanders, who would oversee all Allied operations in a given theater. These two measures would ensure unity of command and prevent asynchronous efforts. 
During the conference, the leaders also decided on their short-term courses of action. They agreed that an invasion of North Africa would be launched sometime in 1942, that American bombers would be stationed in the United Kingdom, and they agreed on the creation of the ill-fated Abdicom. All of these decisions were of course kept secret, but there is one public outcome of the meeting, the signing of the Declaration of the United Nations, which declared that no signatory would sue for a separate peace with either Germany or Japan. While the United States military consumed itself with preparing conventional forces and developing campaign plans, something sinister was looming in the background. Ever since Niels Bohr had published his PhD dissertation on the electron theory of atoms in 1913, physicists had been delving ever deeper to understand the internal structure of the atom, and by the 1930s, they had a solid theoretical framework. The scientific research had yielded little practical application as yet, but many were wondering, could energy be produced by dividing heavy atoms through nuclear fission? At a conference of nuclear physicists held at Georgetown University in early 1939, Niels Bohr and Enrico Fermi brought alarming news to their colleagues. About a month earlier, in the waning days of 1938, scientists at the Free University of Berlin had successfully witnessed the fission of a uranium-235 atom. The news spread among the world's small, close-knit scientific community quickly. At the American Physical Society at Columbia University, Enrico Fermi and Niels Bohr once again met with their colleagues to discuss the discovery and to confirm that the experiment had been replicated in America and Denmark. They knew that the next logical step after the discovery of fission was to see if a chain reaction could be produced. When an atom fissures, it creates two or more new nuclei of lighter elements, but also emits gamma rays. If enough heavy atoms were packed together, perhaps a cascading effect could be generated when the gamma rays from the first fission cause successive fissions down the line. If enough fissile material were available, perhaps a significant energy yield could be created, maybe even enough for a bomb. When confronted by a reporter after the meeting about the plausibility of a bomb, Fermi told him that another 25 to 30 years of research was needed to produce such a result. He knew, of course, that this was ridiculous. Experiments were taking place that very moment that would soon prove that a chain reaction of splitting atoms could indeed yield large explosive amounts. What he feared was the fascists benefiting from American research or accelerating their work to stay ahead of American research. Fermi knew all too well the danger the atom bomb posed in the wrong hands. He himself was still an Italian citizen and had seen firsthand the danger the fascists in Europe posed. What he needed was to get the U.S. military involved. With their backing and secrecy, he could live a little more easily. On March 17, 1939, he was granted a meeting with the Navy to propose a nuclear research project. This was two days after Germany had seized the Sudetenland, home of Europe's only significant source of uranium. The two lieutenant commanders he met with proved unreceptive to his proposal, though, unable to fathom the type of weapon he described. Fermi was now burning to reach the ear of American power brokers. He assembled around him a team of other European refugee scientists, dubbing themselves the Fermi Five, to somehow reach the president. But who had the clout to get the ear of the president of the United States? There was only one name that came to mind, Albert Einstein. Einstein was reluctant, however. He was an avowed pacifist and was loath to bring such a destructive weapon to fruition. Fermi's logic was ironclad, though. A bomb would be developed. 
the only question was who would build it first, the democracies or the fascists. Einstein, a Jew, an exile from Germany, knew what had to be done. He worked with Leo Sislert and Eugene Wigner to draft a letter to the president and signed it. To actually deliver the message, Dr. Alexander Sachs was selected and had a private audience in the White House with the president. To ensure the message was delivered in full, Sachs read the letter aloud. A portion of the letter read thus. In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction and a large mass of uranium, by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. This new phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it is conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed." End quote. The letter also indicated that Germany had halted all exports of uranium, indicating that they knew the value of what they possessed, but that larger deposits lay in the Belgian Congo, as yet unmolested by the Axis. Zox then explained the danger posed by Germany if they were to be the sole nuclear power in the world, an explanation the president probably didn't need. After Dr. Zox concluded, the president asked him, What you're after is to see the Nazis don't blow us up. Precisely, he answered. Though Nazi scientists were indeed making progress in their research, they were not as far along as Fermi had feared. Their main hurdle was in producing enough heavy water to facilitate production of fissile material. This problem would soon be solved to an extent when they invaded and secured heavy water facilities in Norway, but they were still quite far off. Though Hitler was enamored with the idea of secret weapons, he did not actually invest all that much energy into the nuclear program. Back in the United States, despite pleas from European emigres to America, very little progress had been made between 1939 and the start of 1942. Despite Hitler's blitz across Europe, many American scientists, like much of the public at large, remained fiercely isolationist pacifists. At university campuses especially, the animosity towards all things martial was palpable. Men who had committed their life's work to the advancement of the sciences for the benefit of all mankind were loath to pursue an endeavor which is so nakedly destructive. Sure, they were willing to unlock the power of the atom to provide a new, nearly limitless energy source, but using that power for destruction was far too much for them. America was not even at war yet, for goodness sake. As time wore on, though, it became more and more obvious to more members of academia and the general public that in the words of Pericles, just because you do not take an interest in politics does not mean politics won't take an interest in you. Advances in nuclear physics had taken place during the early years of the war, despite the decentralized nature of the research. In March 1940, it was discovered that uranium-238, the most common isotope of uranium found in nature, was ill-suited for the creation of a self-sustaining chain reaction. The feasibility of a fission bomb now seemed less probable, so a new material was needed. This new element was the key to the quest for an atomic bomb. It was capable of creating a self-sustaining chain reaction, and it could be manufactured using the most abundant isotope of uranium. Of course, this still needed to be proven, but the basics were now mastered. On December 6, 1941, Dr. James Conan of Harvard University addressed a gathering of scientists that based on these recent findings, the Roosevelt administration believed that, quote, 
The possibility of attaining atomic bombs for us in the present war was great enough to justify an all-out effort, end quote. That news, of course, was delivered the day before Pearl Harbor, a day which would change the minds of many of America's reluctant scientists, and a year later, many of them made, would be employed by the Manhattan Project. The Manhattan Project, conducted under the auspices of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, was led by the gruff Brigadier General Leslie Groves. Groves was very much a goal-oriented man. He had been in charge of constructing the Pentagon, which would wrap up in the fall of 1942, and all overseas construction. A man less amenable to his academic underlings would have been hard to find. Groves was a career soldier and was used to people following orders. The scientists under his supervision were accustomed to collaboration and debate, not bending the knee to authority. Not only that, but Groves didn't really have much regard for Nobel Prizes or doctoral theses, nor did he have much knowledge in the way of nuclear physics, or you know, the thing he was supposed to be building. Thankfully, a University of Chicago professor, Dr. Arthur Compton, was around to work with the consummate military man in General Groves. Compton was easier going than his colleagues, and recognized in Groves his most important aspect, he could get things done. Together, they would organize and lead the free world scientists to develop the atomic bomb. Though Compton and Groves led the Manhattan Project, it was still very much Fermi and his compatriots who achieved the major scientific breakthroughs. What they needed, though, was a place to work. They attempted to secure a place in the forests outside Chicago, but the red tape proved too thick. Instead, the professors familiar with UChicago realized the perfect location was sitting right under their noses, the squash court under the western stands of Stag Field. No one ever used it, and no one would ever suspect such critical work was taking place there. So that's where they began assembling their first nuclear pile. They would spend all of 1942 collecting enough fissile material to test their hypothesis. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.